Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, everybody out there. Welcome to another edition of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? No Script, No Problem is the show that takes you behind the curtain of unscripted television like never before with insight from some of the best in the business of reality television, documentary series, competition shows, social experiment, game shows, and much more. From Jersey Shore to Rhythm and Flow to Hell's Kitchen. If it's unscripted, we'll get into it. I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I'm a 15-year veteran producer of unscripted television with shows like Extreme Makeover Home Edition, BattleBots, Outdaughtered, The Rachel Zoe Project, and Pros vs. Joes among my credits. Each week, I talk to the talented people who make unscripted TV, documentaries, true crime, and game shows not just something you watch or you consume, but a cultural phenomenon. Now, if you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. All righty. Let's get started. Now, a couple weeks ago, I did an episode on race in reality television, and that was right in the middle of the Black Lives Matter protests um, and a wave of social change that is still sweeping this nation. I had four fantastic producers on as guests. I thought it was an engaging, important conversation, um, but obviously just the beginning. This episode is continuation of that dialogue, but we've got a big twist um, a great friend of mine, uh, a longtime friend of mine, is uh, is one of the guests, and so let's get into it. Uh, my first guest is the CEO of his own production company, Sunwise Media. He is the executive producer, director, and editor of a very powerful documentary, Hope Village. In terms of unscripted television, he's an editor, producer, creative executive, and director with credits such as Double Shot at Love with DJ Pauly and Vinny, Floor Bama Shore, Barter King's Hell's Kitchen, Kitchen Nightmares, College Hill, and Pros vs. Joe's. Please welcome Ricardo Handy. Ricardo, thank you for being here, my friend. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to glad I can make it. <laughs> yes. All right. And then we've got joining us one more time. This is her second appearance on No Script, No Problem. And I'm excited to have her back. She's a talented producer and director. Credits such as Rhythm and Flow for Netflix, Growing Up Hip Hop Atlanta for We, To Roam for Love on Bravo, Chrisley Knows Best for USA, and Signed for MTV. Tiffany Mills, welcome back to No Script, No Problem. Hey, Steve. I'm happy to be back. Thank you for having me back. Awesome. I'm so excited. All right. So I had to set up. Ricardo, you and I have known each other for, this is incro- 16 years, my friend. 16 yeah. years. Yes. I remember mm-hmm. I remember the day you came for your first interview at, at Mess Media. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yes, I know. I wore a suit. A war suit. Yeah, yeah, that was that was that was hilarious. We were like, "Is this guy? He's good. He's he's awesome." But he but he wore a suit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and for for people who don't, you know, for, for anyone listening who doesn't understand, Los Angeles. I mean, in unscripted television, you don't wear a suit to an interview. And Ricardo, I mean, that office was in Santa Monica, like by the beach, and it was in yeah. July. Yeah, we would wear shorts and, and flip-flops to work and barbecue for lunch. So it was right. a, it was definitely a, a, a California vibe at that office. And I had driven three and a half straight days from Cincinnati. And that was my first stop. I stopped at a at like um 
I guess it was like a gas station or something to change clothes. And that was all I had that was like worthy of interviewing. And <laughs> coming from news, that's what I thought you interviewed in. Right. And right. the eyeballs you guys gave me when I walked in in a suit, it was, <laughs> it was hilarious. No, it was. We talked about it for a while. That that definitely was, uh, you, you made an entrance though. Like anybody that was at that company that year you know, knew, knew who Steve was. So that, that was a, you made an impact. Yes. Yes. Well, I got the job and, you know, very, I was very fortunate enough to get the job and you, we worked together. That was a show called I do anything for ESPN. And then we went on and we worked, we worked on some crazy shows. We worked on that show. I do anything for ESPN, which was like fear factor with a sports element. And that was back in the old days of reality television. We had like bulls attacking people and people hanging from uh, blimps like that was crazy to I know me. honestly that show would probably be illegal right now like yeah. it w- <laughs> we also did an even almost more insane show when we did Carpocalypse mm-hmm. which I kind of look back and it was almost like um, we saw Trump's audience <laughs> back in yeah no Tiffany honestly like do yeah. yourself a favor, guys, and and Google YouTube Carpocalypse. I think at least one. I think the the uh, the trailer race is on YouTube somewhere, and it's literally like these all these folks in the South, in the Deep South, that you know make all these kind of d- demolition derby cars and crash trailers and stuff. It was it was a crazy show. <laughs> I'm gonna look it up right now. <laughs> and then we did Pros versus Joes together, which was you know again we got to. You know, we do a show with all these great athletes and everything. So we did three shows together. So that was a lot of fun. That was awesome. Okay. And so now you are super famous. Okay. You know, and not, you know, in a very kind of, you know, unusual way, you know, because in this day and age, all it takes, right? One post or one video. And for you, it was one post, right? Yeah. June 16th, and you decide, like, you know, pretty typical as in our world, right? You you know, you're trying to help other people out. You're looking to, um, you know, help staff shows and things like that. And you go on for people who don't understand that, you know, on Facebook, you have a wide variety of groups, whether it's you're looking for a producer for a show or a production assistant, Um, you know, in your case, looking for editors, um, there's all kinds of groups on Facebook and these groups are to help you find people. And you were on, I need an editor and you gave a post kind of explain for the audience how this went down and how you became kind of the face of what really has become kind of a movement for diversity and inclusivity and in not just unscripted television, but entertainment in general. Yeah, so people were were being more intentional about their search for diversifying their staffs, which is cool. And I was trying to help as many people as I could. I exhausted my 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 phone list and my phone book, uh, and so I went to Facebook. And honestly, I didn't really give the post much thought. I posted in a few groups. Um, that one I need an editor happened to be the biggest one with fourteen thousand members. And you know, before I even really realized what was going on, I started getting phone calls and text messages from people that were in the group, like, dude, your post is going crazy. And, you know, I'm, I'm watching it through the day. It's like 200 comments, 300 comments. And really what, what happened 
is people started to kind of share and screen grab in other groups on Facebook what was being said in the chat. And some of the things that were being said were just kind of out of pocket, right? Like some some of the uh, white editors that saw that I'm looking for um, a black union editor post, you know, really took offense to that. Yeah, and, and it was a simple post. It was basically just saying simply, you know, if you're a black union editor, looking for black union editors, uh, please DM me. And all I was going to do was share those names and numbers with, you know, folks that I know that were looking. And the problem is in our business is if, if the person that's hiring at Disney, the person that's hiring at Netflix or at a production company or any any show doesn't know you personally, um, then then you won't get those calls. And, 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 you know, you don't have like one or two degrees of separation from them. You, you really won't get those calls. And what a lot of people don't realize from kind of an, as an outsider perspective, you know, most jobs as a showrunner, you're not po- you're not posting online like like you would, you know, now hiring at Starbucks or something. Right. Like right. you're 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 quickly within maybe a week or two. Yeah. You're hiring 100 plus people from your phone book a lot of times or from your friends recommendations. And so I think the estimation is like 90 percent of industry jobs don't ever even get posted or online or, or shared wide. Um, so if, if don't, if you don't have the numbers right there in front of you, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to make those calls. And so that was really the only effort, but by, by 11 PM, I think maybe it was even 9 PM that night. So I posted it about 11 AM and by 9 PM that night, I had a LinkedIn message from a CNN reporter asking if I was behind this post and I didn't even know what she was talking about. In the email, she sent me, there was a link to Twitter and, and the woman, Nicole French, who happens to be the wife of an editor, um, you know, had retweeted, had tweeted it and also tagged everyone that those editors had worked on, worked for, because these weren't just, you know, kind of guys cutting YouTube videos out of their apartment. These are people that were editing things like Scandal, things like Grey's Anatomy, things like Nike and Panera Bread commercials. Um, and it just went viral. Like I, I really got to experience in real time what virality looks like. And it was crazy. Like my mom happened to be visiting for the first time since the pandemic started. Um, and we were just literally like my kids, we were just watching the Twitter, you know, the Twitter feed, the Facebook feed. Like it was just like going crazy. Ava DuVernay uh, retweeted it. Um, I remember at one point my kids were like, 30,000, 31,000, 32. You know what I mean, like that's how fast it was being retweeted. Yeah. You know, I could have handled it a lot of different ways. Um, but I decided to immediately call, you know, some folks in the chat that were actually in the union and, you know, hiring managers and just a lot of folks that really had a good perspective on what the problem really is and got their opinion. So by the time I did the LA Times story, and the deadline stories, you know, I really had a good solid understanding of what some of the problems were that have been going on for years. And I think that's really what started to resonate with people is I was able to just speak from, you know, not only just my perspective, but like literally there's perspective of people that have been working on this problem, working on solving this problem, you know, for years. So that's been awesome. I do think it's worth establishing for the audience that some of the response were pretty bad. You know, the one editor, a white editor, you know, responds to the post, white people, it's time to speak up vehemently against this anti-white racism so proudly displayed here and in the culture before it's too late. That's like, to me, insane. Mm. Heavy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
insane. Yeah. Um, yeah. A, a, another one. Um, I wonder how it would go over if I asked for a white union editor. If you are looking for a black editor or a white editor, you are racist, plain and simple. So the one thing I want to say about that particular guy's post, because that was what really started it. Like, yeah. you know, I, I think that there's a couple things that that have to be understood in the context. The editor's union, right, has, you know, maybe seven plus seven thousand plus members um, and less than one percent of them are African-American. Um, it, and, and, and the reality is that's an estimate because, you know, one of the simple requests the diversity committee has been asking the union to do is actually get a real accounting across all IATSE, which if you don't know, IATSE is the below the line, which, um, which unions, which is, you know, cameramen, editors, you know, all the folks that work on the shows behind the scenes. And that's the majority of Hollywood, right? If you're on a set, you know, you only have one director, one couple producers maybe but the other 100 plus 200 plus people are these below the line folks and they don't they have not done a proper accounting of how many women you know how many um african-americans how many latinx members because you know everyone can see that the numbers are low and so one of the reasons why that request even went out is because you have all these folks at like disney trailer houses or um you know different studios like paramount you know excited and, 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 and wishing they could diversify their staff, but they can't find and connect with those people and the union hasn't helped them connect. So we have to help them connect and are on our own. And that's, and that's really what, what this was all about. And unfortunately, you know, the problem has been revealed that there really just aren't enough uh, union editors that are African-American or that are maybe of Latin descent in some cases to fill all the need for them. And so that's one thing that, that turned my, my, my focus to, um, to really help and increase union membership uh, from people of more diverse backgrounds, helping get people their first opportunities. And that's kind of, this whole month has been for me is like, every time I'm finding out about a problem, it's hard for me not to attempt to solve it. And so it's, it's kind of turned into this partnership with the union, the Urban League and, and several other groups um, to not only just talk about the problem, but like really create concrete solutions. And so I've been, you know, I started getting a coalition together of different studios and different companies that that want to work on this together. Um, and, and really what that looks like is a commitment to, to help give entry-level opportunities to folks that are trained, giving um, first-time opportunities to union editors that, um, that are new to the union, that qualify to be in the union, but haven't gotten that first call and we're just becoming a bridge to get those, to create those opportunities because there's a ton of black editors on the roster that no one's in the union on the union show has ever called. And that's because they don't know who they are. Yeah. Tiffany, what was your response when you saw the post and what happened afterwards? Um, well, I, I was very happy that Ricarlo was the person that was leading the charge on this. Um, and, and, you know, Ricarlo, you handled it well very responsibly so i'm proud that it was you and i also think that nicole french is a gangster <laughs> and i don't know who oh, she yeah, is i've never sure. met her she is definitely a gangster um but you know i was not surprised by the response um you know from the people that did not surprise me at all um production companies look for black producers all the time like specifically they look for black producers field producers to be on their shows, especially when they have, mostly when they have an all black cast. 
And that's more so for optics sake, you know, but when that show then has to go to post, it is not going, there, there are no black editors, there are no black post producers there to sort of cut this show together. And that's where the show comes together. And I think a lot of these popular shows out here, they definitely lack black people in post. You have an all black cast, but you also need someone in post that understands that all black cast, you know, that understands some of the, the cultural things that happen. And I'm speaking specifically in reality because that's what I work in. Um, there are a lot of things that get missed in post because there are no black editors. Ricardo, in your experience, how often are you the only black editor on a show? All the time. And, and it's interesting because, you know, honestly, that, that was kind of the crust of the problem, right? As a black editor, you get asked, do you know any other black editors? Um, and, you know, if they're really good, they're usually working. And if they aren't working, it's because they haven't got a shot yet a lot of times. For example, I, I worked on a show um, at Rocket Science, my first show ever in like the early 2000s, like 2001 or two, and I was the only black editor. And I did a show this year, and I was the only black editor again. And it's it's 20, you know, the 20 year gap between those two time periods, but a lot hasn't changed. And that's because, you know, there really isn't a system, much like when you look at sports, you know, there's, you know, the high school, uh, to the G League pipeline or the high school to college and then to maybe a D League pipeline. Um, and, and you can go to Europe, right? There's all these different ways that you can get opportunities to actually show your talents. And the thing about our business is it is, you know, art, but it's also skill. It's also a technical skill. And I think that one of the mistakes that the industry has made is every time there's a diversity issue, they focus on three jobs, the writers, the directors, and the producers, right? Or the creators. Mm -hmm. And and like I said, that's a very small percentage of the comp of the of the business. Um, I was talking to someone about the NAACP's just made a agreement with CBS um, Viacom to do this, you know, to bring on black creators, right? And I think that the mistake with that is that, you know, even with even even the NAACP, right? When they did, did the Image Awards this past year, they didn't really have any black vendors. They had a, a, a white-owned production company, and most of the crew was white. Even though you have someone like Reggie Hudlin as the director, you know that's really for PR. You know what that ends up looking like is, you know, you have maybe one person or three people at the top that you know have some creative decision-making power, but not necessarily the hiring power. If companies really want to be about diversity, they 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 need to not only start from the top down but create opportunities from the bottom up. You know, one of the simple examples I give is when we often look to kind of bring new folks in, we often look for the pathway that we came through and we need to find a diversity of pathways too. With the Urban League, we're bringing foster kids from LA, from South LA um, into the, you know, city college experience, the community college experience and learning how to use the AVID and then further going to train them on how to actually, you know, do workflow on a real television show. And so I'm working with studios like Fremantle, working with studios um, like Paramount um, to give those folks opportunities, um, you know, and a real pathway to get some non-union experience uh, on a show, whether it's just digitizing or managing media. And, and then, you know, as they get experience, getting them rostered to, to join the union. 
and, and transition to someone like Paramount. And so that's those are the kind of pathways that have to really be created. In addition to, you know, all, all truth be told, a lot of these networks and studios do not hire uh, Black-owned production companies. They may hire a Black show creator, but then they'll partner that creator with a preferred vendor is what they would call it, right? To, to handle yeah. the physical production. And so they're not, they're, there's, there's, no, um, there's no diversity at, at the top in, in a legitimate way. There's just kind of a lot of these diversity efforts are, are more for publicity. And I, and I think that that's something that we have to just be honest about and, and find the allies that really want to change, that really want to make kind of things, things equitable and have more parity. Because we're heading into, you know, uh, an award season where next year you're going to have diversity mandates um, and, and and a lot of these shows won't, won't be able to meet them. So, Ricardo, coming out of all this, you create you help to create like a list of over 300 editors of color. The idea behind this list is, to, uh, you know, it gives companies and it gives showrunners, people, you know, access to being able to hire them easier. What's been the response thus far to having access to this list? Uh, are people more black editors getting hired? Yeah, I actually, you know, didn't know what would happen, but I honestly just was overwhelmed by all the people asking me. And so I put the list out inside of my uh, deadline op-ed that came out like pretty much a week or two after this happened. And the response has been incredible. I mean, not only at any given time, I can see how many people are looking at the list. And I'm, I'm telling you, you know, easily 20, 30 people are looking at the list at any given time um, of the day or night. And um, and a lot of people, I mean, um, you know, I know folks at Netflix, folks at Disney, um, folks at uh, Jason Bateman's company, all the way to Lucasfilms, uh, Fox, NBC, Universal, Someone, you know, in a, in a hiring manager position has downloaded the list from all those companies and people have been getting phone calls. People have getting gotten general meetings uh, on the books with, with studios. They would have never even known, you know, who they were prior to this. Um, and so that's been the, the, the coolest part is really seeing everyone connect in a, in a legit way because, you know, Hollywood is so elite and so like, you know, sectioned off and, you know, there's the, the, the classic velvet rope, right? And so I think there's a lot of people invested into keeping, you know, people distant. But I also think that those those folks maybe aren't as confident about their position, right? Like they know that anyone can come take their spot at any moment, but that's that competitive nature of the business is what makes Hollywood attractive, right? Like you don't watch the Oscars so everybody gets a participation award. You watch the Oscars because you want to see what what everyone's peers think were the best movie that year. And guess what? If you don't win one this year, you can come back and, get, and do better next year or win next year. And I think that's what makes the content better. That That's what makes people, uh, you know, kind of really attracted to what we create because they know that it wasn't, for the most part, someone's just random, you know, dream or, or project. It was like somebody somewhere said, hey, this is the best thing that we should be doing right now. And so I think the list... Um, it was it was people resonated in a way with that, that I didn't ex- expect, which was um, really that now a lot of folks are getting kind of an equal shot at opportunities um, that they wouldn't have gotten equal shot to because of that that velvet rope that they were behind and uh, they didn't know anyone they could call. They didn't have a friend they could call to get them in the club. You know what I mean? And yeah. uh, I pretty much just let everybody in the club and 
you know, now, now you can, uh, you can kind of choose for yourself who, who's the best match for you. Uh, and I, and I think that's, that's important, right? That's important that, that the industry not only, you know, talks about equality, but actually is equal. Yeah. Yeah. But this seems to be something good coming out of an uncomfortable conversation. Um, what other uncomfortable conversations do we need to have in our industry in order to, to make it better, in order to make it more inclusive? Well, and, and I, I want to hear what Tiffany thinks about this too, and, but I, I definitely want to share one, one thing about that because it's not really just about this industry specifically, it's about this whole country. And the, the fact is, you know, I grew up in Germany, right? And I've seen what, you know, real reparations and real like atonement from a country looks like, you know, uh, everywhere you go, you are reminded of the atrocity of the Holocaust and you don't see any paraphernalia or flags uh, of, of the former regime, right? Like promoted in that country. Um, and, and that's because they, they, they really made an effort to go through a healing almost immediately um, after the world war. And, and, and unfortunately in, in the United States, you know, the war that was fought in 18, in the 1800s, uh, we still haven't healed from, right? We still, we're having a, a conversation, you know, nearly 200 years later about whether or not the enemy's flag should be flown. Right. And, and so right. th- there's, there's, there's a, there's a healing, there's a wound in this country on both sides, right? There's a deep wound where there really has never been a true healing. And it's almost like this very dysfunctional relationship that the United States has to race. And and I know this so true because I have a lot of friends from places like Canada or different places in Europe um, that just don't really understand what the, what's going on here. You know what I mean? And, and it's and it's and that's not just America. It's definitely other countries around the world, but we we definitely experience it uh, in the worst way because it's just this constant wound um, that, that keeps coming up. And so that's the conversation we need to be having. Like, what does it really like to atone? And on some, some ways it's a hard conversation to have because people that are alive today was like, well, that not, had nothing to do with me. On the other hand, because it had nothing to do with us, we should be able to start fresh, right? And some people have to be, people have to be willing to do that. Um, people have to be willing to step to the step up to the plate and say, "Hey, you know what? Let's acknowledge the past as the past, um, and and let's see what what things are in place now in our country that were set up from back then." Because keep in mind, our prison system, our justice system, a lot of the systems that we have in this country weren't set up last year; they were set up right. two hundred yeah. years ago. Yeah. So 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 it's um, it's important that we really look at all these systems. And not really pretend like they're just going to fix themselves or change themselves. No, their their systems are meant to stay the same over time unless there's some law or some kind of action to directly change it. Tiffany, you want to piggyback off that? Yeah. Um, you know, the uncomfortable conversations start at home, you know, and I know uh, when I was on the last time we talked about uncomfortable conversations, they have to start at home first. Um, for white people, just so I'm clear who I'm talking about. The uncomfortable conversations need to start in the home and then they need to just start with yourself. Like what are some biases that you may have that you you don't even realize are biases? You're just functioning in this in your everyday life. I had a producer that works in Unscripted um, hit me up 
you know, when all of the news broke about Breonna Taylor's murder and white producer. And he said, I don't understand why this keeps happening. Like, excuse me for, you know, sort of being not absent-minded, but excuse my ignorance. Like, I have to ask, why does this keep happening? And, and you know, all I could really tell him is just like, this is not the first time. This will not be the last time. And the way that things are set up systematically, it is, it is set up that a police officer can break down your door and sh murder you while you're sleeping in your bed and then arrest your boyfriend for defending you and just call it a day, go on right. vacation with their family, you know? And then when people like Yandy Smith go and protest this, she's arrested and she's charged with a felony. Like th this is just regular life. That's not the first time someone's had their door kicked in and, and murdered. It's happened to black children who we, you know, definitely, they're definitely innocent in these situations. So by the time that it trickles down and makes it on set, you know, it's, that's just like a derivative of a bigger problem. Yeah. 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 And I think, I think one of the, one of the things that, that, that Tiffany points out that's super important for all of us to really be aware of is that, you know, it may not be you, right. It may not be you, the person in your family or in your circle that is, is kind of promoting these hateful thoughts or, or these hateful systems. But, you know, we all know someone, right that that may be the culprit and i and i and i give the example you know i have a, a two children seven and nine uh my my four-year-old had to deal with the the burden of of coming to me and saying that kids wouldn't would, didn't want to play with him because they said his skin wasn't cool and we had a conversation with all the parents and all that and everybody was like i have no idea where it came from you know what i mean but the truth is whether it was grandpa or or, or whether it was mom and dad somebody taught those boys uh, yeah. those kids to be hateful um, and to, and to look at, you know, my son as different. And, and I, I can tell you for a fact at that point, my son didn't even know what that was, you know what right. I mean? And, and, and I had to teach it to him. I had to talk to him about it earlier than I planned. And that's just the, the world we live in, in America. Um, and, and, and Hollywood is in America and, and it's, a, you know, it's, it's everywhere, you know? Um, and so it's, it's got to be a conversation where, where you're, where you're um, in those conversations, you know, in your group, in your workplace, wherever you are, um, you have to decide if you're going to be someone that speaks up or, or, or someone that that's kind of stands by and, uh, and doesn't say anything. And speaking up is not easy, especially for those of us that are in those sort of lower level positions. You know, like, let's say PAs, whether you're a post-PA, PAs catch it, whether you are a post-PA, a field PA, or a driver, some of the things that they hear and some of the conversations that they are in, of in earshot within, you know, I remember catching it as a PA. And you don't feel comfortable speaking up because it's your job. So there are, there, you know, this week we, we also saw, we did see some change um, in terms of bringing some diversity to one of the biggest network unscripted shows. Tyra Banks is taking over as host uh, Dancing with the Stars, to fill, you know, taking over for Tom Bergeron. Is this encouraging um, for, for you guys? Uh, not for me. I mean, like I said, like, you know, I'm talking about below the line mostly, 
And, okay. you know, even though you have folks where it's like we celebrate, oh, there's going to be uh, maybe some African-American judges on The Voice, right? Or a show yeah. like that. Um, I, I happen to know, um, you know, there's only one Black editor of 26 editors on The Voice, right? Um, wow. And, and a lot of the crew, you know, and, and so when, when, you, when you look at all these things and they add up, the, the problem is that if you, if, you, if you really look at, you know, organizations having um, kind of true parity, right? True equality amongst, you know, and the, the, the social demographic and racial makeup of the communities that they're in, um, you know, it really should look like the U.S. Census, you know, it really should look like the actual makeup of that community. And, and it just doesn't in, in Hollywood or across the board. And I think that these Band-Aids is what I'll call them, of putting a Black face at the, the leadership role or a, a visual role in, in, in one department or one area or another, does, does, it's just really kind of covering up the fact that, you know, no one wants to do the hard work of really creating a system that's fair. So I think that, that every time Period. I see that, Every time I see that, that's all I think of. It's like, oh, okay, you're hiring, you're gonna hire a black director. Great. The directors do not hire the crew. They don't. Right. I mean, they can, they make recommendations. They may even be able to request their DP or certain things, but the production company hires the crew, the production manager, the line producer, the post supervisor. Those those department heads hire their people. Um, and I know I've gotten a lot of calls from a lot of people at all the various unions. Um, you know just kind of telling me their stories. They're just like, they're like, finally, someone has a voice to share this issue. So I've been helping tell their stories and just for makeup artists, for example, you know, a lot of them don't get the opportunity to not only work at a capacity on some of these shows at all, because the leads kind of go from show to show, you know, some of these, the the glam squad leads are, are people that kind of, you know, just hire their friends. It's like almost like one, it's like if one, um, you know, hair, hair salon got to do all of Hollywood is kind of how it feels to them because, yeah. you know, they are shut out in a lot of ways and even getting the opportunity to work on any one of an opposite, you know, race. And so they're kind of only pigeon held into these, you know, into these um, kind of silos where there's no, no, a lot, not a lot of opportunity for, for, um, for advancement in their careers that that's, you know, it's a problem. And it's not an easy one to solve and it's time consuming. And, and so the one thing that I'll share is just through this whole time, I've been, you know, just kind of put in a position where I, I feel like I can be and I, and I have been the one to step up to do it. And so not by myself, I'm, you know, forming partnerships with people like Hugh, you know, and um, a few others that we're going to announce. A lot of groups are doing this work. And I think we just all have to come together and offer that service to the industry. Um, and so I will say this to anyone listening to this podcast, um, you know, if you go to handyfoundation.org, um, you can not only download the black editors list, but you can also kind of sign up to, to partner with us, you know, whether you're an organization that's doing some sort of training, um, sort of, sort of career advancement training or, or entry level trainings. Um, if you're a studio or production company that wants to, you know, learn more about how you can diversify your staff. Um, I think that the, if we get enough folks involved. Uh, we'll have a pretty nice system because um, a system is just that. It's, it's a group of, of different touch points that all work together for one purpose. And I think those touch points will be the unions, the training facilities, and, and, the, um, and the studios all working together. I think we're kind of done, you know, with the Band-Aids. 
examples. Yeah. You have people constantly asking for the arrest and conviction of officers that are murdering Black people. Um, some of the things that are happening, uh, it feels like we're being pacified, you know, instead of when people are calling for the arrest of cops and changes, you know, in companies, things like removing episodes of Golden Girls are happening, you know, from like 1980, whatever, things that have nothing to do with what we're calling for today. I'm happy to see Tyra as the new face of Dancing with the Stars because I think she's a great person for young people to look up to. Um, and even greater than that would be having black editor or black producers on this show. So, yeah. and that's on every show, that's across the board. Please yeah. don't give us a band-aid to pacify. And when I say us, not just black people, like all people, for all of these allies that are standing with us calling for the same thing, you know, when something like this happens, you should nod your head just like we do and say, mm -hmm, okay, so what else? <laughs> right, right, yeah. You know, it just it just occurred to me, like I just recalled, so Disney also just did a deal with Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. You know, they, mm -hmm. they gave him, and not just like one series, but uh, an overall deal, and is bringing... I found also interesting is bringing Jamel Hill on as a producer for his, I think for the docu-series, I don't think for the overall uh, deal, but at least for the docu-series. Is that surprising to you guys that of all places, ESPN, Disney is doing a deal with Colin Kaepernick, who, you know, is now being seen as he was right. You know, he, this is a guy who made a stand, was criticized, but, you know, by the president, by so many people. And now he looks like he looks like a, a visionary, you know, a guy who was right all along. Well, it, it's interesting because I think you're, this actually brings up an extremely, extremely important point. And it's two of them, actually. One is there's a big difference between Colin Kaepernick and a lot of other folks that just happen to be black meaning that he actually has a, a socially consciously driven mission in, in his life that's in alignment um, with the movement that's going on now. And people are seeing that he's on the right side of history. Um, and so um, I think that's an important distinction between just someone being Black and someone actually doing the work to make something happen, you know, that's of any race. Um, and so to, for them to align with him I think is a little more impactful um, just because we know what is going to come from that. We know what his mission is and we can, uh, he's going to, they're helping promote that mission. Now, the other difference between, you know, dancing with the stars, let's say as a TV show and Disney as a publicly traded company is that it's important for a publicly traded company to be on the right side of history because they have a very long view of, you know, where they want to be. You know, which is why Nike aligned with him and, and all these different folks, you know, the folks that are more privately hailed, kind of just looking at their bottom line from year to year, I, I would say have a shorter view. And, and, and that's why some of those decisions are being made about this season, this year, right sure. now. And, and, and I just think that that's one of the major things we have to look at in our decision making. Like, are we making our decisions with a long view of being on the right side of history, what we want to see for the future? Or are we making these short-term, you know, kind of short-sighted decisions about what can we do right now or what should we not do right now? Uh, because we don't want to be, 
you know, people don't want to be pioneers. They want to, they want to, they want to follow the crowd a lot of times, unfortunately in Hollywood, they want to yeah. follow the trends. And so I think that's, that's really, um, that's really an internal company wide and internal personal decision about what kind of individual company, individual show, individual person you want to be. Um, and, and that's, that's probably one of the most important questions we could ask ourselves. Uh, during this time, like, who are we, you know? Yeah. Tiffany, any thoughts on, on Colin's deal with uh, Disney, ABC, ESPN, the whole Disney family? I'm excited to see the content that, that comes out of it. I think it's going to generate further conversation. Um, I think that it's well-deserved and I can't wait to see it. Likewise. Um, Ricarlo, the last thing, uh, Hope Village, where can people see this documentary that you made? Um, there's, I know that there's a book that goes along with the documentary. Where can people find it? Because, you know, I saw it. It's very impactful. Um, I want you to be able to tell people uh, where to go grab the doc. Yeah. So, so thank you for asking about that. I'm, you know, Hope Village is a passion project of mine. That's super important to anyone struggling with addiction or has a family member that's struggling with addiction. For me, it was my father. And the film kind of follows me on a journey to learn about, you know, rec the recovery process through through telling the story of this woman, Lucy Hall, who's just simply amazing in that area. Um, you know, she has saved over, you know, 10,000 families, 15,000 probably now in her years running the facility in Georgia. And so it's a bio it's a biopic about her and also about her her business that she built. Um, but you can watch the you can watch the film. You go to hopevillageproject.com and you can kind of get access to everything. Um, but the film is available streaming on um, on on Amazon, Google Play. You can get it on iTunes, uh, VOD, Video on Demand on, on all those sites. And then as well, um, you know, I'm actually appearing in some film festivals coming up, um, ABFF and Bronze Lens. Uh, so you got to check nice. those schedules. They're doing virtual. Nice. Uh, they're doing virtual uh, uh, screenings for those. So it's going to be interesting. You know, COVID kind of shifted our plans for the release. It was released in May, um, but we've just kind of been pushing through and the reception has been good. Um, so, and we, we are hoping to have some announcement about um, television um, and, um, airing um, of it in uh, September for National Recovery Month. So that's what we're working on now. That's fantastic, man. I'm glad. I'm glad to see that it's it's getting out there because it's an important. There's an important message there, it really is. All right. Well, thank you both for joining me. I know this one, this episode has been a bit crazy. Um, so I appreciate you both <laughs> hanging in there with me and uh, getting out uh, a very important message. And thank you for everything you're doing, Ricarlo. Um, you know, you're a leader and a pioneer, and you've been great to me in my career. And so uh, keep doing what you're doing, my friend. All right. Yeah. Well, I'll talk to you soon, brother. Okay. Uh, now, for everybody out there listening, if you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe, download, and rate it with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Bleed.com and at Bleed Podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. You can also write a question if you have one, and I'll answer it on the show. Email those questions. No script, no problem, podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks to Mike DeLay and Real Voice LA 
for the audio hookup. And thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.